It is a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning, and I bring you greetings from Sovereign Grace Bible Church in Manitoba, your brothers and sisters there who inquire about you and pray for you often, so greetings from them. It is a joy for us to be here and worship our Lord and Savior together with you. If you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and we want to read verse 11 to 14. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That is the word of the living God, and it will be our text through which we will hear from Him this morning. And I trust that it will be an encouragement to you as you continue to follow your King, our King, and our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. I know the last little while has been a little bit difficult, perhaps, but I trust that even as we look at this text, it will be an encouragement to you that you are indeed following the instructions of our King, our Lord, our Master, and that you will rejoice and be encountered worthy to do so. Let me just also say that, though it may have been difficult for you, you have been an encouragement to us and many others. So keep on keeping on. But as an introduction and for some background, we want to read in Acts chapter 5. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 5, I want to begin in verse 12. We pick up just after the Lord Himself has implemented the very first church discipline in what was really still a very fledgling church where the Lord Himself implements this discipline by killing Ananias and Sapphira. You'll recall how Ananias and Sapphira had conspired together in the, by and through the land that they sold. Uh, they conspired together to lie to the Holy Spirit. And the Lord struck them dead, both of them. And it brought great fear upon all the people. And even the people from without, those from the outside, they, they saw that this is a serious thing. And the people were in fear, and they recognized that this is no small commitment to be committed to this body, to be committed to this Christ. And so that's where we want to pick up right after our Lord has executed this discipline upon Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 12, and we want to read this to make note of the status of Peter in this text, that is the status of Peter in the church. So Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, we see that none of the rest dared join them because they recognized, they saw, because of what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira, that they dared not join them unless they were wholly committed. They recognized that this was a serious thing, and the people feared. And though they feared, they nonetheless held them in high esteem. But continuing in verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid on them, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so we notice here Peter's status, Peter's position, if you will, in the church, how he was regarded by the people. Now in our text in Galatians, it says, but when Cephas, and this is Peter, when he came to Antioch. Now what we read here in Acts chapter 5, this is not Antioch, this is in Jerusalem. That is, before there were any Christians even in Antioch, really this was even before the church moved outside of Jerusalem. This was when the church was still entirely Jewish. The people who were being saved were Jewish people. They were from Jerusalem. This was even before the Apostle Paul. Paul was still only Saul of Tarsus, and on the biblical record, he has not even come on the scene. And so we see Peter's status in the church. He was immensely elevated. There's no question about that. And our purpose is not to look at that as whether we should look at his elevation in the church as being good or bad, nor are we addressing this shadow of Peter falling on people and how they desire to be healed through that. That's not the purpose. What we want to note is here is this great apostle, the one who has this status, this elevated status in the church, this apostle who preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people at once were saved and they were added to the church. And as we read here, now more than ever, people were being saved. This great work of the gospel had been started by Christ, yes, but now by this man, Peter, who proclaimed the gospel for the first time, who preached Christ at Pentecost, and as we said, the people were saved. And so we see his elevated status and the perspective and the regard that the people in the church had for him. Now, certainly he's not elevated to the level of infallibility as the Roman Catholic Church would declare and that Peter was the first pope and their popes are infallible. We see that although Peter had this elevated status in the church, he was certainly not infallible. In fact, he was very capable of and he did hurt people deeply. He did bring reproach upon the gospel. And he did bring disunity and discord among the church. But we do see here that he was a man of elevated status in the church. He was seen even as a leader among the apostles, and no doubt, even and certainly among those who are at Antioch, these people in Antioch who are largely Gentiles, and even for the Galatians who's, who are the audience of our text that we want to look at. They all knew of this great apostle who had preached at Pentecost and how the work of the church had begun through him. 
how this mighty work, the church, which they had now been allowed to enter into as Gentiles, how it had begun by and through the preaching of Peter. That they, the Gentiles, were allowed to enter into that work, into this gospel that Peter had proclaimed at Pentecost. They knew of the subsequent miracles of Peter. And so probably even the greatest point of elevation, the elevation of Peter even in the Gentile church, and even in Antioch, was his encounter with the Roman centurion Cornelius and the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10. And I'll just let you read that on your own sometime if you're not familiar with the account, but we do want to give just a quick summary of that. This Roman centurion whose name is Cornelius, he was a man who fears God and all his household, and he gave alms generously to the Jewish synagogues. He recognizes the God of Israel as being the one true God. He sees then or is commanded in a vision that he is to send men to Joppa and have Peter brought to him. And these men who have been sent to Joppa as they come to where Peter is, you'll recall how Peter is waiting on the housetop, being hungry and having food being prepared inside. He falls into this trance and this sheet comes down from heaven filled with all kinds of creepy crawlies and unclean animals that were foods that, that were not kosher for a Jew to eat. And this happened three times, and each time this happened, the Lord said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And each time, Peter would say, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean. I am this Orthodox Jew. I am committed to to this. I would never eat these foods. And as you know, the Jews had all these dietary laws that the Lord, many of them had, or many had given them many of these to prevent them from assimilating with the pagans and with the heathen. And through the years, their religious leaders had added all kinds of further restrictions also to these dietary laws. And so these were all foods that no Jew would eat or even touch and come into contact with. And as Peter is wondering what this all means then, these men from Cornelius come and they tell him about Cornelius. And so the next day he goes with them to Cornelius' house. And when he enters Cornelius' house, this Roman centurion, a man of power and authority in the Roman military, Cornelius bows and he worships Peter, this fisherman. But Peter lifts him up and he says, Not so, for I am a man. And so through all of this, Peter understands the message of the sheet coming down and the Lord saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he understands it to mean, as he says now in Acts chapter 10 and verse 28, listen to what he says. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is what Peter came to understand. That's how the Jews viewed the Gentiles. They would consider them as common and unclean, even as dogs. But this is now what the Lord shows Peter through all of this. And Peter testifies and says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And thus, having gone into this home of this Gentile, this centurion, Peter recognizes that God chooses those for himself as he wishes, even Gentiles, that there truly is no partiality with God. 
And Peter preaches Christ to Cornelius and his household. And those who hear are regenerated. They believe and they come to faith in Christ. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them in such a way that Peter and the Jews who are with him, they see this and, and they recognize and they understand that the Holy Spirit has indeed fallen on these Gentiles. And they are astonished. They are amazed that the Holy Spirit would come on these common and unclean people. But they recognize that this salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has now come to these Gentiles. And Peter then acknowledges that and that they are equal Christians with them. And he commands them or he commands that they be baptized. And so in all of that, Peter has done what is unacceptable in the Jewish custom. He has entered into the house of an unclean person. And now as he comes back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11, he's confronted now by the Jews, those of the circumcision party. And he's he's being questioned, or perhaps we could say he is being grilled by them. They confront him and they say something like, you went into the home of an uncircumcised man, Peter. You went into the home of those who are unclean. You went into the home of Gentiles and you ate with them. People who are not Jews, you have defiled yourself through this. Peter then boldly and valiantly defends not only the integrity of the Gentile salvation, but the integrity even of the integration of the Gentiles into the church. And, and he does this boldly and valiantly. And he then recounts to these Jews what had happened, how the Lord had saved these Gentiles and how the Lord had shown him and taught him that we should not call anyone common or unclean. And that the Lord truly is not a respecter of persons. And as he recounts what has happened, even the Jewish people who were with Peter, they testify as well and they say, yes, we were there. We witnessed this. We saw the Holy Spirit come upon these people, these Gentiles. The Lord truly saved these people. Those who we thought to be common and unclean and those of the circumcision party recognized then what had occurred. And when they hear this, in chapter 11, verse 8 of Acts, they drop their case against Peter. They praise and glorify God and say, listen to what they say, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They're willing to accept then that these Gentiles have also been granted repentance that leads to life. They're willing to recognize and acknowledge that these Gentiles are their brothers and sisters. And if we keep reading in Acts chapter 11, we see that this event, at least in part, played a huge role in great evangelism efforts in Antioch after a persecution then arose in Jerusalem. That this event resulted really in the church springing up in great number in Antioch, almost like it had at the beginning in Jerusalem. And the church was just really growing now in Antioch. This was almost like Jerusalem 2.0. Whereas in Jerusalem previously, the church was growing in numbers and it was primarily an entirely Jewish people. Now in Antioch, it was no longer just Jewish converts, but mostly Gentiles. In fact, it is in Antioch that the scriptures tell us that they were first called Christians. And so Peter, though he was the apostle to the Jews, the one through whom the Lord revealed, though he was the apostle to the Jews, he was the one through whom the Lord revealed that salvation was equally for the Jew 
or for the Gentile as much as the Jew. And so there was this great appreciation for this apostle whom God had used to reveal this wonderful truth to the Gentiles. And so Peter, for these Gentiles, they saw that this is is the man through whom the gospel has come to us as Gentiles. And so there was this great appreciation for him. And maybe they didn't elevate him as we saw in Acts chapter 5 where they would want his shadow to fall on on them. But he was very highly regarded and no doubt he arrived in Antioch with a lot of excitement and anticipation and also with an elevated status. And so seeing that, we can then pretty easily understand how Peter would have been received coming to Antioch. He would have been received almost as this celebrity or a hero because of what he meant to them. And now Paul in our text in Galatians to give this final defense of the authority of his apostleship to the Galatians says, not only did the apostles affirm and confirm my authority as an apostle, as we see in Galatians just prior to our text that we read, he was given the apostleship by the Holy Spirit the same as Peter. But he says, my authority in the gospel that, that I preach is such that I will even publicly call out one of such status as Peter when he contradicts the gospel. And when I do, it's Paul saying, saying in essence, when I do, I will not be stepping out of line in the least. And thus, by that, in a sense, this is really then the capstone, the one thing that finally closes all the arguments against Paul not being a legitimate apostle. If he was not a legitimate apostle, he could not have legitimately confronted Peter, which he did, and which he says he did because he was Peter's equal. He was an apostle of the gospel, and he did oppose Peter. He did it not to defend his apostleship, but he did it for one purpose and one purpose only, though he uses this account now to defend his apostleship. He did it not for that purpose. He did it to preserve the truth of the gospel. This epistle to the Galatians is Paul dealing with a false gospel, with those who are presenting and proclaiming a false gospel, and they were continually attacking his credibility as an apostle. And he has been de- defending his apostleship, called anathema all those who would proclaim a false gospel. He has held nothing back. He has called those who are propagating a false gospel. He has called them false brothers, those who are willfully uh, attempting to undermine the gospel. But now in defending his apostleship, he is dealing with and he is presenting to the Galatians something else. This is not false brothers, not those who preach a false gospel, but those who are living in gospel hypocrisy. And that is what I've titled the sermon this morning, Gospel Hypocrisy. He is addressing or presenting those who on paper agreed with the gospel completely. We see even in Acts chapter 5 when Paul left Jerusalem after this great council with the apostles and elders. They were all of one accord. There was complete agreement in the gospel and even what they believed the the fruit of the gospel should be. There is no distinction between them. Peter did not believe something different than what Paul did. Paul is not confronting Peter as a a false brother as he said previously in verse 4 to 5. 
He said, those, those who are false brothers, he said, we would not even give them a moment. We would not even give them a platform. But he recognizes Peter as a brother and fellow apostle. And now he has to deal with this gospel hypocrisy. We want to look at that in four points. And we see first in verse 11, the clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy. There should always be a clash when there is gospel hypocrisy. And sadly, today, there, there isn't nearly enough of a clash oftentimes when there is gospel hypocrisy. We see the clash between these great apostles, both of whom have been given their apostolic ministry by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 12, we see the cause of gospel hypocrisy. Verse 13, the consequences. And then in verse 14, the confrontation the confronting of gospel hypocrisy. And so beginning in verse 11, we have the clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Because he stood condemned. The NIV translates that as, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. The New King James says, I opposed him to his face because he was to be blamed. And in this clash, in this clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy, this clash that should be there when there is gospel hypocrisy, we see two features. We see the nature of the clash and also the reason for this clash. First, we see the nature. When Peter came to Antioch, possibly even invited by the Apostle Paul himself when he was in Jerusalem, as we see them being there together in Acts chapter 15. Paul perhaps even saying to Peter, Peter, you should come visit us in Antioch sometime. These people would be thrilled to have you come and, and share God's word with them and, and, and listen to you tell of your walking with the Lord while he was here on this earth. They would be thrilled if you would come. These Gentiles who have been made fellow heirs in the gospel, they know, they have have heard how you, Peter, from the very start, defended their right to the gospel of Christ. And they would just be so glad to have you come. And however that may then have been, whether that was by direct invitation of Paul or, or not, here we see Peter coming to Antioch, coming to visit, and he was received in this manner. And he had full and glad fellowship with all of those who were there. But Paul says, I opposed him to his face. This was not an, um, you know, Peter, I don't know if this is really a big deal, but I thought maybe I should mention this to you. You know, Peter, if you wouldn't mind, uh, maybe you'd want to consider this. But if you know, if that's really how you feel, then who am I to judge you? You know, you do what you feel is right. This was not that. This was, Paul says, to his face, in his face, clearly, boldly. It says he opposed him. It carries the idea of forbidding. This is Paul saying, Peter, I forbid you to keep doing what you're doing. This was commanded by Paul to Peter. This was done with authority. There was no hesitancy in in Paul's approach or in his confrontation. This was not suggestive. This was with and in full authority. It was done to his face. He didn't say it everywhere and to everyone except to Peter. And so we see the nature, the nature of the clash, that it is to address it at its source, to address it where the fault really lies. 
And we need more men of God today who have the unction and the courage to do this. Today we have too many responses of, ah, maybe it's not right, it's not really good, but you know what, that would be so unloving if I, if I said that, it could cause conflict. But we see here the nature of the clash to his face. And though Paul recalls this incident to the Galatians to demonstrate his authority in the gospel, we see again that this is not why he did it. He did it not to give himself some platform or some clout or some fame or recognition. He didn't need that recognition. He was the pastor at Antioch. This had nothing to do with him wanting any kind of clout or wanting to have his five minutes of fame as he might even be accused of being today or maybe being accused of, well, he just thinks he's always right. The reason was not to prove his legitimacy or authority, though this very action does prove his legitimacy and authority. That was not the reason. It was, Paul says, because he stood condemned, because he was to be blamed. This was no false speculation. This was no speculative accusation. This was not hearsay. He rightfully was to be blamed. It could very easily be proven. It could be demonstrated. It had been seen by all. It was shown here that, it, or it had been shown that there was no reasonable doubt. Peter was guilty. This was not innocent until proven guilty. He was guilty, as the NIV translated. He is clearly in the wrong. And that is the only reason why Paul then, in this nature, confronted him. Because Paul was a man of character and principle, and he was committed to the truth of the gospel, not to his own reputation. And thus, because Peter was clearly in the wrong, it was the right thing to do. And because Peter was clearly in the wrong, and it was the, it was the only thing to do, and it was the only thing that a man of principle and character could do, it was the only thing that a man of character and principle would do. And so we see the clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy. We see the clash that should come because of gospel hypocrisy. We see the nature that it is to the face, that it is addressing it at its source, where the problem really lies. Gospel hypocrisy must be addressed to where the fault initiates. That's, you know, to take the bull by the horns. This is not a timid or even a gentle approach. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that we should not be gentle. There are times to be gentle, but in the Scriptures we do not see gentleness being associated with confronting gospel hypocrisy or a false gospel. Today, too many times, we can see the grossest kind of gospel hypocrisy and we are too worried about tact. Now, again, I'm not saying that we should not be tactful. Don't get me wrong, but Paul was worried, concerned about the truth of the gospel. And the truth is that sometimes, and probably even most times, in cases like this, when there is legitimate gospel hypocrisy, when someone is truly in the wrong, gospel hypocrisy then, no matter how you will present it, will be seen and viewed as being harsh and arrogant and unloving by some and, and maybe even by most. But we see the reason What was happening was clearly in the wrong. It undermined the gospel, and it undermined everything about the gospel, and that cannot be, and it must not be, tolerated. 
Paul was committed to protecting his flock as he had warned also the Ephesian elders to do in Acts chapter 20 when, when he said, take heed to yourself and to the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of. And when a pastor or an overseer as Paul was in Antioch fails to act upon what is right, upon that which is clearly the right thing to do, he has failed, first of all, to take heed to himself. He himself is disobedient, and he has also failed to take heed to the flock. Paul was committed to taking heed to himself and to the flock, and so we see this clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy. We see this clash that should come when there is gospel hypocrisy. Then in verse 12, we see the cause of gospel hypocrisy. For certain men, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. These of the circumcision party are people from the same group that confronted him when he came to Jerusalem after having been at Cornelius' house. And so what we see now immediately is that the cause of gospel hypocrisy is the fear of man, which really boils down to self, self-preservation. What will people think of me? It is not being committed to what is right above all else. It is being committed to self, trying to protect oneself in some way. And so whether or not these men who were from James were themselves of the circumcision party, I think it is inconclusive, but it doesn't really matter. These Jews were from Jerusalem, and certainly they practiced circumcision as the Jews still would. And I do not see that these Jews of the circumcision party that Paul refers to here were necessary, necessarily the party of the Pharisees that he addresses as false brothers in, in verse 4 and 5. Or even those that Luke in his gospel identifies them as the party of the Pharisees, and, or in, rather in, in Acts chapter 15. These Jews, as I understand, are likely those who accepted that the gospel was by grace through faith, even as they did when Peter recounted to them what had happened with Cornelius when they confronted him after he had been in his house and they had said, how you, or how dare you, a Jew, enter into the home of a Gentile? And you remember when Peter shared what had happened, they said, well, then God has granted these also repentance unto life. They were willing to allow even these Gentiles that they could be saved by grace through faith, but they themselves would remain very religious in their Jewish practices, especially even in their dietary laws. They might have allowed for these Gentiles, which they found very difficult to do, and some more than others, they found it difficult to accept that these Gentiles could actually be saved by grace through faith. And though they would allow for that, reluctantly oftentimes, they themselves would remain very religious in their customs, even if they wouldn't impose this on the Gentiles. And even that they found very difficult to not want to impose on the Gentiles all of their customs as well. And they would often trend towards that, where they would impose all of this on the Gentiles. They had not yet made the connection The instruction to the Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, when Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he says, if one of you, or if, if one of the unbelievers invites you, 
That is you, that is a Christian, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. But if you as a believer are invited to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. That is the instruction to the Christian. And those Jews of the circumcision party had not yet made that connection or come to embrace it or understand it. They might be willing to allow for the Gentiles to be saved, but they would certainly still require that Jews keep all the customs. And they themselves would certainly refrain from eating with Gentiles and eating anything that was seen as unclean or unkosher. But the instruction to the Christian is to eat, to eat what is set before you regardless of who sets it before you. Because, as our Lord said, you are not defiled by what goes in the body. You're defiled by what comes out because that reveals the heart. And Peter had been doing this up until now. He had not given any thought to what was set before him or who set it before him. He had come to Antioch and he had been received with great excitement and anticipation and he had not said no to any dinner invitations. He had been eating whatever and with whoever was beside him. And I'm certain that he was quite enjoying the bacon and the ham. And he was probably even, now this is some artistic license here perhaps, but he was probably even telling Paul, man, that was a good meal. I can't wait. I hear this next family is making pulled pork for me. He was eating whatever was set before him with whoever was with him and whoever set it before him. And he was completely free to do so, and, and he did, and, and he was having full and free and sweet fellowship with the people who invited him. And there was no doubt many invitations, for as we saw, Peter was highly regarded. Everyone would have considered it an honor to host this great apostle by whom God in this sense had made the gospel available to them as Gentiles. The Lord had revealed that they too could be fellow heirs of Christ, fellow heirs of the grace that was in Christ Jesus through this man, through this man who had then valiantly defended them when he had been confronted by the Jews for going into a Gentile's house. And thus they might well even have felt an indebtedness towards him. And so they're inviting Peter and they're having this great time of fellowship and eating together, eating whatever is being prepared. And the Gentiles would never even consider preparing a kosher meal. It would always be unkosher. It would always be something that the Jew would not eat or would not want to come into contact with. Something that he would prevent him from participating in the meal. And yet Peter had been freely drinking eating with these people in their homes, at their love feast, taking part in the Lord's table together with them. But now, when certain men came from James, he stopped. James, as you know, was the leader in the church in Jerusalem. The Lord's half-brother wrote the epistle of James, and he was very influential in the church, especially in Jerusalem. He was one of those who Paul said previously in verse 6 were influential. James, John, Peter. Now, whether these men were sent to Antioch by James to bring back report, or whether they came on their own, Peter feared them. More so, maybe even than fearing them, he feared what they might say back in Jerusalem. Back in Jerusalem, where the Jew, or where the church was Jewish, and where they still all practiced the customs. 
What would these Jews say when they were back in Jerusalem? What would they say to those who were committed to these Jewish customs and believed very strongly that Jews should be committed to these customs? Even though they acknowledged that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ. If these Jews now go to Jerusalem and tell those in Jerusalem that he, as an Orthodox committed Jew, kept not the customs and he ate with the Gentiles, what would they begin to think of him? What would become of his ministry in Jerusalem? What would become of his reputation? And as Paul says, and he drew back. And then he eventually separated himself entirely. That word translated drew back suggests that what Peter did was gradual and sneaky and deceptive. Trying to at first to not allow the Gentiles to know that he didn't want to eat with them anymore. Trying not to let the Jews know that he had or that, that he would like to and, and he was being deceptive about it. Really the epitome of hypocrisy. First making all kinds of excuses for no longer accepting their invitations to where he would no longer even eat with them at the same table when they had their love feast together. He would now intentionally and, and very clearly go and sit where only the Jews were sitting. Where at first he would just draw back, he then separated himself completely in such a way that though he did not maybe say it with words, by his actions he was clearly indicating or suggesting or saying that I as a Jew cannot associate with you as a Gentile. I cannot enter into your house. You are a second-class Christian. He did this even though God had clearly shown him that this was not true. When he had been in Cornelius' house, he was the one who said himself that God has shown me that I should call no one common or unclean. And yet, by his actions, he was now stating that indeed these people were common, unclean, second-class Christians, that I as a Jew am above sitting with you. And so he stood condemned. He was clearly in the wrong. This old sin nature, the old man who denied the Lord Jesus Christ, though he had declared that though all the others forsake him, he would remain faithful. This old man who, though walking on the water, as soon as he saw the waves, he doubted and began to sink. This old Peter again reared his ugly head. And because of the fear of man, because of the fear of his own reputation, because of the fear maybe of his own ministry status, being this highly regarded apostle in the church in Jerusalem, such that as we read, they even wanted his shadow to fall upon people. And by by his actions, he offended. By his actions, he stumbled. By his actions, he hurt deeply these dear brothers and sisters in Antioch who had regarded him so highly, who had treated him with such hospitality, with such love and kindness. Not only that, we see in Peter's actions the far-reaching consequences of gospel hypocrisy, verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Not only did Peter sin against the gospel, not only did Peter sin against these dear brothers and sisters in the church at Antioch who had so graciously and so kindly and so lovingly hosted him, but because of his influence and his status in the church, 
Now the other Jews were, who were there who had also previously had sweet fellowship together with these Gentiles, now they were beginning to do the same thing that Peter was doing. They were committing the same sin. It was great wickedness. This was racial prejudice and partiality. This was great wickedness that Peter was guilty of and his sin was not isolated. Dear brothers and sisters, sin is never isolated. No matter how secluded we might think it to be, it always affects and infects others. Our sin will always affect others. And the more influence we have, the further reaching our sins and the influence and the effect our sins have on others. And here is a warning not only to church leaders, but to all of us as, as members of the local church, as parents, as husbands, as fathers. We cannot think, we must not think that our sin, well, it's just our own sin before God. No, our sin, it affects our family, it affects our wife, our children, because now we are compromised. We are to be the shepherds of our homes, of our families, and now when we are compromised, we cannot adequately and properly protect and shepherd and guide as we ought. And thus, we're not only sinning against God as if that wasn't enough, But when we sin, we're sinning against our wife and our children. We're sinning against the church when we live in gospel hypocrisy. And we see the far-reaching consequences that sin is never isolated. Sin always wants to lead and does lead others into sin. So that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. Barnabas, who was one of their co-pastors, he was a co-pastor with Paul at the church the one who had gone to great lengths to bring Paul to Antioch for the sake of pastoring and ministering together with him, teaching them in and instructing them in the gospel of Christ. And they've been doing this for quite some time, teaching to these Gentiles the word of God, teaching this church in Antioch about the freedom in Christ and how this gospel that they were proclaiming, how it tears down all racial divides and barriers. They were the ones who taught them against what he was now doing. Barnabas had gone to Jerusalem with Paul, as he says in chapter 2 and verse 1. He had been at this Jerusalem council where they had defended the Gentiles and the attack against the gospel and this attack against the Gentiles where they were trying to succumb the Gentiles to these Jewish customs. Barnabas... Even Barnabas, Paul says, fell into hypocrisy with them. Barnabas, whose real name was Joseph, he was given the name Barnabas by the apostles because of who he was. The the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. This is who Barnabas was. He'd been given this name because this is what he did. He was an encouragement. He was an encourager. And he was an encouragement, and he had been there encouraging this church in Antioch for all this time to all those that he and Paul had been ministering to. And here also is then the warning amplified when James writes, Let not many of us become teachers, for we shall receive a stricter judgment. Because now, influenced by Peter, even Barnabas, who had taught them that there is no racial divide, that the gospel has torn down all these Barriers was acting and living contrary. Let not many of you become teachers, James says, for they shall receive a stricter judgment. Because they are standing before the people and they're saying, thus saith the Lord. And therefore, if thus saith the Lord, people should then be able to look at them and how they live and determine and assume that thus saith the Lord of how we should live. 
And they follow that example and they, and they follow what they say and therefore they have that added accountability. And even Barnabas was led astray in their hypocrisy. And so, so we see the consequence of this sin. How far-reaching it is. Sin will always cause people to stumble. It will drag other people along with us into that sin. It will drag them into sin. That is what gospel hypocrisy does. And so we've seen the clash that comes from gospel hypocrisy, the, the nature of the clash, the, the reason for the clash. We've seen the cause of that clash. We've considered the consequences, how it offends and hurts our brothers and sisters, how it causes other brothers and sisters to sin against their brothers and sisters and against the Lord. It has very far-reaching consequences. And then verse 14 to 21, I think, is probably Paul's response to Peter. We want to look at verse 14 as the confrontation. The confrontation to gospel hypocrisy, and because of what it is, the far-reaching effects that it has, it must be confronted. Verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is to Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? First of all, we want to note the motivation for the confrontation. Paul says their their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The motivation for this confrontation is the truth of the gospel. Not for the purpose of being the one to set someone straight. The truth of the gospel is the motivation. It must be the motivation. Because the gospel eradicated, the gospel erased any and all cultural and racial divides. And by this action, the truth of the gospel was minimized. It was being disguised. The truth of the gospel was that there is in Christ neither Jew nor Gentile, nor nor Jew or Greek, but their actions said that there still is. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God to the salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, only in the sense that it came to the Jew first. But other than that, there is no respecter of persons with our God. When Christ died and he hung on the cross, this great earthquake shook the earth and the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The curtain which which blocked the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. It was removed, indicating that now in Christ all had access to God. Jew or Gentile, every barrier had been eliminated in Christ. And in Christ all had access into the very presence of God. And Antioch had been the glorious picture and displaying of this gospel power where Jew and Gentile were sitting together and eating together in sweet fellowship and harmony, worshiping their Savior. For years, Barnabas with Paul had taught them that. Peter had been seen as the pioneer defender of this truth. But now by Peter's hypocrisy and by Barnabas following and the rest of the Jews along with them, Not only was this fruit of the gospel destroyed, but it played right into the hands of the enemies. It played into the hands of the enemies. And dear brothers and sisters, gospel hypocrisy plays into the hands of the enemy. 
It validated what these Judaizers and these false prophets, false teachers were trying to do in the church, trying to convince people that it was necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised to be saved. These Judaizers who had effectively even were trying to keep people from the gospel. And so, dear brothers and sisters, our sin weakens the power and effectiveness of our church's ministry. It plays into the hand of the enemy. This must be the motivation then. The motivation for the confrontation is the truth of the gospel, and we see that that was indeed Paul's motivation. He saw that they were not in step with the truth of the gospel, and then when that is the motivation, we see the method. The method of this confrontation, the method of confronting gospel hypocrisy. It needs to be confronted as wide as the offense if the offense has been, has been public, it needs to be publicly addressed. Paul said, I said to Cephas before them all. This was a grave sin that had been committed against the gospel. They had sinned against the gospel, against the Lord, and against the church, and against other believers. Those Gentile believers who were in Antioch, this was a sin that was committed very publicly. It was very divisive. It was a sin that that needed to be dealt with and addressed quickly and just as publicly, and it needed to be addressed publicly, especially because Peter was a leader in the church. Now, not all sin needs to be dealt with this publicly, but it needs to be dealt with. But when there is gospel hypocrisy among church leaders, it must be dealt with quickly and publicly. Augustine said, and I quote, It is not advantageous to correct in secret an error which occurred publicly, end quote. And this is also what Paul instructs us in 1 Timothy 5. And this is what he practices here now. And if you would turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so there in verse 17, we have the instruction to the church how they are to respond to the elders. This is not an option to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We are not to receive an accusation or a charge against an elder unless by two or three witnesses, meaning unless it can be clearly proven or demonstrated that this is indeed a crime or sin that he is guilty of, which is what Paul did with Peter. He said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was clearly in the wrong. And if they cannot be proven... And if it cannot be proven or shown that they are clearly wrong, we are not even to entertain accusations against them. Because we should even anticipate that the enemy will try to bring accusations against them. But yet they are not above being corrected. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, meaning they have been found to be clearly in the wrong as Peter was. Paul says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear so that the rest may stand in fear, that they recognize the severity of the sin and the consequences of that sin. Rebuke them in the presence of all that they may stand in fear. Do it publicly so that the church understands that this is not tolerated, this must not be tolerated, that gospel hypocrisy is not 
acceptable. It is far too serious. It is far too far-reaching consequences. And he says now then in verse 21, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Without prejudging. You do not determine someone to be guilty or innocent based on what you think of that person or whether you like them or whether you don't like them or who their family is. But you only rebuke them in the presence of all when they are clearly in the wrong. And when they are clearly in the wrong, you rebuke them in the presence of all so that all may fear, doing nothing from partiality. Sin in the church that is not addressed is the very cancer that will destroy it from within. And if that sin is the sin of an elder or a pastor and it is not addressed, then it just increases the rate at which it will destroy from within. And so we see that the position or the prominence or the influence of a church member is not in the least to be a determining factor of whether or not sin is addressed. But it will at times determine how publicly it is addressed. MacArthur says, and I quote, a church that does not discipline sinning members, including the most prominent members, loses its credibility because it does not take seriously its own doctrines and standards, end quote. And so we see the method that it has to be as wide as the offense. And in the case of leadership sin, it needs to be, a bit, be addressed publicly. But not only does it need to be as wide as the offense, it needs to be clearly identified. It needs to be clearly identified to the offender and to the people who have witnessed or are aware of the offense. It must be clearly identified what the offense is and that there was indeed an offense committed and that this offense has been or is being addressed. Paul says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul clearly confronts him to his face in the presence of them all. He points out his hypocrisy. There's no beating around the bush. He says, Peter, your actions are not lining up with the gospel. There's nothing vague or ambiguous about what he confronts him with in the presence of them all. For he says, Peter, you're a Jew. You've been living like a Gentile. Peter, you were eating with these Gentiles this whole time. You had fellowship with them. You enjoyed this fellowship. You, you saw nothing wrong with this fellowship. You encouraged this fellowship as you should have. You are a Jew, and you did not live like a Jew. You did not keep these customs. How can you now say, he's pointing out these obvious inconsistencies. How can you now force Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you are now by your actions saying that the only way that Jews can have fellowship and unity with the Gentiles is if they become like a Jew and adopt all of the Jewish customs. You're being a hypocrite. You yourself, Peter, did not do this. You ate what you wanted, when you wanted, with who you wanted. You were the very one who encouraged and stated and taught that fellowship and unity is in the gospel, not in these Jewish customs. You were the one who said God had shown you that you must not call anyone common or unclean. And Peter, likely even at the request of his host and even over and over again, had told them the story of this sheet coming down and going into Cornelius' house and, and how Cornelius had been saved and what he had learned from that. And yet now he would not eat with them. Paul clearly identified the hypocrisy and what it was that was being addressed. Gospel hypocrisy 
must clearly, unambiguously be confronted and addressed. But we need to wrap this up. We've seen the gospel hypocrisy of Peter. We've seen the clash that comes because of gospel hypocrisy. We've seen the nature of the clash, that it has to be and it should be addressed at the source. And we see the reason for the clash, that they were clearly in the wrong. There is nothing else to be done when they are clearly in the wrong other than to address it. We've seen the cause of this gospel hypocrisy, that it is the fear of man, that it is self-preservation, the focus on self and not on Christ. Not on what is right, not on what is true. We've seen the consequences then of gospel hypocrisy and how far-reaching it is. That it not only sins against the gospel, against our Lord, against the church and the people of the Lord, but it drags other people into this sin as well. And because of that, we've seen the confrontation. There's the necessity because of that for confrontation. And in that confrontation, we've seen the motivation. The motivation must be the truth of the gospel. Then being motivated by and for the truth of the gospel, the method must then be as wide as the offense. It must be for the purpose of protecting the flock. It must be clear. It must be clearly identified so that all know what is being addressed, why it is being addressed, and that it is being addressed. Also, I think we can see from this account that even godly men, godly men can fail and fail miserably. And so that should be a loud reminder to us then that we too can fail and it is best for us to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. It reminds us that men that we look up to and maybe even have influence in our lives and men we listen to and, and, and follow because of that influence, they're not just to be followed without question. And when they do fail, it shouldn't have to be that the world falls out from under us. We should not even be that surprised in a sense, though it is tragic when that happens. But it should not have to devastate our entire Christian life. For the psalmist says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. And we need, and we can also see, and we should also learn from that, that we need not act the hypocrite along with those who do, though they may be of influence. And yet... We see again in Peter's gospel hypocrisy, we see that when we walk in the flesh, we are going to fall into and walk in gospel hypocrisy. Therefore, the command to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, even as Paul concludes his letter to the Galatians, for that is what is going to prevent gospel hypocrisy. But then I think it would also be appropriate to ask ourselves, even right now, right here, as we are about to partake even of the Lord's table, drink the cup and to eat the bread to ask ourselves, is my conduct, is my life in step with the truth of the gospel? Am I in any way through the influence of others living in gospel hypocrisy? Is my influence causing others to stumble? Am I doing what Peter and the rest of the Jews did? And to even be honest and ask the Lord to, to show us if there be any such wicked way in us. And if he then shows us that there be, that we then repent. As everything indicates that Peter did as well. Though Peter, though Paul does not clearly state it, it does seem that Peter received the rebuke 
and repented. That we too would repent of all gospel hypocrisy if there is such. And that we would walk in a manner worthy of this glorious gospel, being faithful to our Savior, to our King, Jesus Christ. So that all the praise would go to his matchless name. Let's close in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we see again from your word how you bring people back to yourself. Father, it is by those means that are unpleasant, by those means that we often want to avoid and and so often do. And yet we see that as Paul says, he withstood him, he confronted him to his face because he was to be blamed. There was no personal agenda or self-motivation or motivation of self, but rather the truth of the gospel and the protection of the flock. Father, I pray that you would guard us against thinking that that we can disregard these things and and believe that, that things will continue to go well. But rather even though these things are difficult and hard, it is the very means by which you keep your people and you draw them unto yourself, where you show yourself to be holy and and majestic and through which people begin to see you as being more holy and more majestic. And so, Father, I pray that you would just encourage the hearts of these dear brothers and sisters here at Grace Bible Fellowship that though they have gone through difficult times, that they would be encouraged as even by looking at this text and being reminded from this text that you are a God who has given instruction in these times and that to follow you is always what will bring your favor. And so I pray that you would just encourage them in that that you would just cause us to, to look at our own hearts and where there be any kind of gospel hypocrisy, that you would just bring us to repentance and to confession before you. So again, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would just empower that to our hearts, to the praise of your glory. We pray this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.